The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right, well, it's fill-in-the-blank time, okay? Fill in this blank. I really hope that. Fill it in. How would you complete that? Hmm? See, what, what are you, what are you hoping for? Today, what are, you, what are you hoping? And we all hope for something. Hope is, is actually like hardwired into us. I really hope that. You might really hope that the kids will take a nap this afternoon, right? Um, you, you, you might really hope that if your kids are older, that they would come to a saving knowledge and understanding of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you might hope that the relationship works out this time, or that somehow your, your marriage is, is, is going to get better. Um, you might hope that you can make some progress on that area of sin in, in your life that, that seems to continuously plague you, or, or that the biopsy comes back negative, or that God makes clear to you a decision that you, you're going to have to make this week, or that your candidate gets elected, right? You, you might hope that Casey Thompson can play next week. Or you might hope that that book that you ordered on Amazon yesterday comes by Tuesday, right? What are you hoping for? What are you hoping in? Most often when we answer that, what we're looking for, what we're looking for is present rewards or else to escape present miseries. Well, as we dig into our passage for today in Romans 8, verses 23 through 25, the, the theme of hope emerges here. It shows up five times in just two of our three verses today, but also this theme of hope, it, it doesn't just come out of nowhere and land in Romans 8. See, we, we've, been, we've been rolling low and slow through the book of Romans this, this fall, in particular through Romans 8 this fall, which means from time to time, it's actually really helpful to come up for a little bit of air and grab some greater context. Romans 8, after all, is a part, it's just one part of a letter, a letter that Paul wrote to the, the Christians in Rome, Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome, right, who, who he wants to encourage them. He's heard about their faith. He, in fact, in chapter 1, he says, your faith is being proclaimed all around the world, so he's kind of excited about what's going on in Rome, and he actually tells them, I, I, want, I want to come to you, I want to see you so that I can strengthen you and actually be mutually encouraged by you. Right? This is who Paul is, is writing to. And so the, that's all part of Romans and what's going on in Romans. But the reason that we're rolling low and slow in Romans 8 is because this part of the letter, Romans 8, is chiefly about the assurance of salvation. Knowing that you know that you know that you belong to God. And, and that's a truth that pastorally... <laughs> I just really long to have just deeper into us as a church body. Knowing that we know this assurance of salvation. Like my, my prayer is that years from now, you might look back on the fall of 2022, maybe in some specific ways, maybe just in, in vague and in, in general ways that you can't put your thumb on, and, and be able to say, man, that was a time, that was a season in my life where God really did something in me, where he actually, I can't even explain it maybe, but he grew me in my understanding and in my internalization of the assurance 
of my salvation. That he actually grew me in, in standing in the certainty that I belong to him and always will. That's what Romans 8 is about. It's why we're going slow. But don't lose track of the larger scheme of Romans either. In Romans 1 through 4, right, Paul is largely dealing with how we become right with God and, 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 and dealing with what we call justification. He tells us that we are justified, counted right before God by grace through faith, not by our works. It's not what we have done or will do. It's what Jesus has done that gets us right with God. And then in Romans 5, he begins to trace out some of the implications of that. He says in Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since, do you remember that? Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God. We have access to God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God as those who have been justified. We have hope, see? In fact, Paul links hope with suffering in Romans chapter 5. Telling us that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. And the kind of hope that we have as Christians, it never puts us to shame. It will never let us down. (laughs) So in chapter 5, Paul begins to draw our uh, our attention to the implications of what it means to be justified. In chapter 6 and 7, then he deals with common objections that come up when he preaches this stuff. What about sin? What about the law? He's answered all that. In fact, he ends chapter 7 by saying, look, we still sin. That's still a part of us. There's still indwelling sin in us. But there's a war that's going on inside of us now. A battle between the flesh and the spirit who's been given to us. And that battle, remember he says the, the battle doesn't indicate that you don't belong to God. In fact, quite the opposite. The battle that you're experiencing with sin in your life is indicative of the fact that you do belong to God. And therefore, he says in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for you now. There's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who have been justified by grace through faith in Jesus. No condemnation, and there's never going to be. It was all settled at the cross. And if we flip forward to the end of Romans 8, this is where we're heading, right, by the end of the year. He, he says that at the end of Romans 8, he says there's no separation either. That's what we just sang. That if you belong to Jesus, if by faith you trust in him, nothing is going to separate you from his love. Nothing. No condemnation. No separation. What incredible statements of assurance. And in between these two great bookends of Romans 8, there is all kinds of tasty goodness for us to enjoy, all related to the assurance of our salvation. It all connects back with what Paul began in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace with God, access to God, hope. All these themes emerge again in Romans 8. And he adds, no condemnation. He sent his spirit into us, made us sons of God, adopted into his family, heirs with Christ. I mean, there is so much in here, right? And as we take a little bit here and a little bit there, my prayer is that God would be doing something in you. Doing precisely what Romans 8 was designed to do, to grow you in your assurance of salvation. If it's helpful, maybe this is a timely illustration. If it's helpful, think of Romans 8 as a pumpkin, all right? Anybody carve a pumpkin in the last couple weeks? Nobody. Well, party poopers. (laughs) I did. I carved one, just one. Um, So think of Romans 8 as a pumpkin. The name of this pumpkin is the assurance of salvation, all right? And and what we're doing this fall is kind of taking the top off of this pumpkin, 
getting down into the guts of this thing and pulling out the seeds, right? Pulling out the seeds, roasting them low and slow, enjoying them. This morning, we have another seed. This seed is called hope. Don't forget about the pumpkin, though. Don't forget about the pumpkin patch that it came from, the rest of Romans. But this morning, we have a seed, and the seed is called hope. If you don't have a Bible already open to Romans 8 already, it's time to do that. Romans chapter 8. It's page 944 if you're using one of those church Bibles. Romans chapter 8, page 944. And I want us to begin here by looking um, at verse 18. We looked at this last week. Sarah just read it a minute ago. But what does Paul say in Romans 8, verse 18? He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So again, picking up a theme that he started back in Romans 5. There's suffering. And we talked a lot about that last week, right? That even though we're justified now, even though we have the Spirit now, even though we are adopted sons of the Father on high now, there's suffering in our life. But the context, remember, is assurance. And so Paul tells us, look, I I know that there's going to be suffering in your life. I know there's suffering in your life right now. I know that there is just suffering and unjust suffering and regular, just everyday old suffering. But he says all of that, all of your suffering, this is what he said last week, is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's, it's like he put us in a helicopter, right? And we get in this helicopter and Paul raises us up out of the battlefield of our present sufferings just for a minute and he gives us a a glimpse, he gives us perspective to the end. We get up above it all for a moment in the helicopter and from that view, looking out over the course of time, we see to the end and we're able to say with Paul, suffering's got nothing on glory. Nothing. Well now in verse 23, The helicopters come back down. And verses 23 through 25 are more like a tank. A tank called hope. And what we can take away from this passage is that hope, unlike the helicopter that takes us up in the sky and gives us perspective, here instead we learn hope gets us through. It gets us through. And this is an incredible component, an essential ingredient to the assurance of our salvation. With all that said, here's what we can taste in our passage this morning, this seed that we're looking at called hope. Number one, what hope is. Number two, what hope actually looks like in the Christian life. Number three, what our hope is in as Christians. And number four, what hope does. Hope. What it is, what it looks like, what it's in, and what it does. First, what, what is it? What is hope? We use that word a lot. We throw it around a, a, a lot. What does it actually mean? What is Christian hope? What is biblical hope? Look, look at verse 24, and in particular, the second half of that verse. Paul tells us some things that are pretty easily understood about hope, doesn't he? He, he says that hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes in what he sees? That's pretty easy for us to understand when we think about it. Like if I order something from Amazon, I'm hoping it comes on Tuesday. Once it arrives and I have it, I'm not hoping for it anymore. I've got it, right? It's here. 
Hope that is seen is not hope. Paul says we don't hope in what's here. No, there's a a future orientation to our hope, and we understand that intuitively. Which is why he adds, though, in verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, we're going to come back at, at the end to this waiting for it with patience part, but just for now, we should recognize and acknowledge hope isn't in what is seen, it's in what is unseen. Once you see something, once it's here and you have it, you cease to hope in it. And so we're hoping in something that is is yet to come. Hope looks forward, if you will, with, with eager expectation. Now, here's the thing about hope. Um, hope is only as strong as that what we hope in. Um, hope is only as sure as the certainty of that what we're hoping for. And what we're all searching for is a hope that won't disappoint us, that won't put us to shame, that won't leave us feeling hopeless. Again, we're all hoping for something. We're hardwired for it. Each of us has hopes, we have dreams, we have longings. Whatever language that you use, we're hoping. Hoping something turns out the way we want it to. Hoping things don't turn out the way we don't want them to. And if we analyze our hopes, often we're hoping things that aren't guaranteed. Not in the Bible anyway. None of us here are guaranteed that a dating relationship is going to work out this time. Um, none of us here are, are guaranteed that the test will come back negative. We're not guaranteed that Thompson will play next week, and even if he does, we're sure not guaranteed a victory in, in Michigan, right? <laughs> All those are actually worldly hopes. They're hopes for present rewards or to escape present miseries. And because none of them are guaranteed, none of them are certain, and therefore there's a fragility to our hope, isn't there? Like you and I know, like we can, we can smell, we can sense when a hope is fragile, can't we? Biblical hope, on the other hand, the kind of hope that Paul is talking about in this passage is not like that. It's not fragile at all. Romans chapter 5, he said, it's, it's never going to put you to shame. It's certain. It's guaranteed. It's future, yes. We can't see it. It's not here, but it's guaranteed. And therefore, it gets us through. Hope gets us through. I love this definition of biblical hope from Paul David Tripp. He says, biblical hope is a confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way you live. A confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way you live. That's what hope is. That's what real hope is. And that's the kind of hope, the only kind of hope, that can get us through. Now, what does that actually look like in, in the Christian life? I mean, what, what does it look like to live with one, or as one, with this kind of hope? We agree, don't we, that hope should change the way that we live? Peter must have thought so. I mean, he says in 1 Peter 3 that, man, people, we should expect that people are going to ask us about this hope that we have. 
Like people are gonna look at your life, the people, your neighbors, your extended family, maybe your kids, others around you, your coworkers, they're gonna, they're gonna look, you should expect them sometimes to look at your life and say, there's something different about you. What is that? Well, what does it look like then? Well, it doesn't look like putting on some fake plastic smile that we manufacture on our own in, in order to stir up this question from others. You know, Paul says one of the things that characterizes biblical hope in God's people is groaning. There's something we can resonate with. Remember the context here from verse 18? This pumpkin seed is closely related to the last one. Both are talking about the sufferings of this present time. Suffering makes us groan, doesn't it? When you get that phone call, that you never wanted to receive? When you get that bill, the unexpected one, that you, there's no way you can afford. When a loved one gets the diagnosis that you feared, we groan. And yet, we also need to be careful to make sure we understand biblically what this groaning business is really all about here. We think we know, but we might not. Remember last week, remember in verse 22, Paul said that creation was groaning? We're like, oh good, we're not the only ones. (laughs) Creation was groaning. Now in verse 23, he says, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We too groan. And so creation is groaning, and we're growing. Paul is relating the two. But also, remember what he said about groaning last week? Um, he, He said creation is groaning In the pains of childbirth. Remember that part? Verse 19, creation is waiting with eager longing. The the groaning was expectant, wasn't it? The the groaning was was marked. The creation was groaning with this eager longing. Well, in verse 23, Paul says, our groaning as Christians is to be the same. Just like creation is waiting with eager longing in verse 19, so too we are waiting eagerly in verse 23. Just like creation's groaning is in the pains of childbirth, expectant groaning, so too is our groaning. In other words, Christian groaning is different than worldly moaning. Or the other word that we sometimes use that rhymes with switching. When Paul says... Not only the creation, but we ourselves grown inwardly. He pairs it immediately with, as we wait eagerly. He's not saying that as as Christians, if you just listen to to Christians, that we make up this symphony of sighs. (sighs) We're not merely groaning under the sufferings of this world. We're groaning for what is yet to come. And look at how he describes us in this text. He says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves, he says, he's talking about him, he's talking about the Christians in Rome who he's writing to, by extension to us today as Christians, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Why does he add that? Well, because becoming a Christian 
and receiving the Holy Spirit, two things that he tied together back in verse 9, doesn't rid you of the groaning that accompanies suffering because becoming a Christian and receiving the Holy Spirit doesn't rid you of suffering. We still groan. We still groan. In fact, multiple commentators that I read this week put it so strongly as to say, we groan because we have the Spirit. Hmm. Which makes sense when we differentiate between worldly moaning and Christian groaning. We groan expectantly. We groan eagerly with the pains of childbirth precisely because the Spirit is in us. The first fruits, he calls it, the down payment, the the first pledge, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And because he lives in us, because we have the first fruits, we long, don't we? We long for the flesh to be destroyed, putting an end to that Romans 7 war. We long for it. We long for our bodies to be transformed, the the promised resurrection of our bodies that Paul was talking about in Romans 8 verse 11. We long for that. We long for Jesus to return and, and consummate everything he's already inaugurated. Which leads us directly into point number three. And what our hope is in. And so we've seen what hope is. We've seen something about what it looks like. But what is our hope to be in? And Paul tells us if we just keep reading. Not only the creation, he says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for. Okay, this is what we're waiting for. This is what our our groans will give way to. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this, what's the word, church? Hope. In this hope, we are saved. Paul says here that when you were saved, when when you became a Christian, when you were justified, to use his word from earlier in the letter, when that happened to you, you didn't just get your sins forgiven. You received hope. Hope and salvation are inseparable companions. For in this hope, you were saved. Or into this hope, you were saved. You you were saved out of a realm of no hope into a realm of hope. Which means you have hope now. Real hope. And that hope is described a lot of different ways in the Bible. But here, Paul describes it as our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. That's what our hope is in. That's the guaranteed result that we have a confident expectation of. And yes, we've already been adopted. Paul said so up in verses 14 and 15 that we are sons of God, that we have received the spirit of adoption. We have been adopted into his family. And yet, we know that there is a fullness and a finality, a consummation of our adoption that yet awaits us when Christ returns. When the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead, will, the dead in Christ will, will rise first. Then we who are alive, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, 
We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the air, in the clouds. We're going to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord in his perfect care as his perfected sons and daughters in his perfect presence with redeemed bodies. Bodies that no longer break down. Bodies that no longer need biopsies. Flesh that no longer is at, is at war with the spirit. You and I are going to be completely new. Glorified. And in our father's presence as his beloved adopted sons and daughters. That's good news. And it's part of the gospel. The good news of all that Jesus has done. Like we zoom out, all that he has secured. He has secured your adoption. He will redeem your body. He's put his spirit in you. And we groan for this. This is what you are groaning for. This is what we are eagerly waiting for, expectantly for. This is what our hope is in. And it was all accomplished by him. Remember, our hope is only as strong, only as sure as that which we hope in. Well, this is all finished, isn't it? It was finished on the cross. It was attested to by Christ's resurrection. It's secure. You and I have a confident expectation of a guaranteed result. And it changes the way we live. That's the last part. This is what hope does. It changes the way we live. See, hope is, is not inert. Hope is not something nice that we speak platitudes about and put on Hallmark cards. It's not some ethereal truth that doesn't really make any difference in our life. Biblical hope, like Paul is talking about here in Romans 8, it changes your life. Look at verse 25. He says, if we hope for what we do not see, what is our hope in that we do not see? Our full and final adoption as sons, our redeemed and restored bodies. If our hope is in that, he says, we wait for it, we wait for all of that with patience. Now, I don't know why the ESV translation does it, but they drop out the word eagerly from wait here in verse 25. Most other translations leave it in. So if you've got an NASB or a New King James Version or a Christian Standard Bible or a New English translation, they all leave it in. All right, it's actually the same word that's used in verse 19 where creation is waiting with eager longing. It's also the same word in verse 23 where we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. And so the sense here is that if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it eagerly and with patience. Eagerly, but with patience. Huh. Typically, one of the others of those describes a person we're either eager or patient. Isn't it interesting here that Paul says both? Paul says that the two actually come together in the life of a hope-filled Christian. Hope, see, transforms us into a people who are 
eager for Christ's return and yet patient for it too. And therefore, hope gets us through. Eager and patient. Does that describe you? Eager and patient. Patient and eager. Do both describe you? Or are you maybe like me, a little bit prone towards one or, or the other, right? If we get over-eager, we can begin to expect too much from this world. We want our inheritance, and we want it now. Eagerness without patience leads to frustration, demanding God to act more on our timeline than his. It changes us from thy will be done to mine, dang it. We can become so eager for Jesus to return and redeem our bodies and those of the ones that we love that we get upset with him when he doesn't. When that describes us, we're eager but impatient. It can also manifest in a different way though, right? It can also lead to a sort of health and wealth gospel. One that says, one that becomes very overly optimistic. One, one that says out of, a, in a prosperity sort of way, God has great things planned for you. He's going to take care of all that stuff. No, he's going he's to rid you of your suffering. I just know it. Eager but impatient. Conversely, if we become overly patient, Without the eagerness. Well, we can grow complacent. We can lose evangelistic urgency. We can grow even maybe comfortable in this world. Kind of like this world. Not so bad. Having a lot of fun. Or we can become apathetic, pessimistic downcast, cynical, Debbie Downer. But that's not what we'll call it. We'll call it being a realist, you know? Being a, that sounds better. Patience without eagerness, see, leads to an entire different set of issues. We're to be marked by both. We mark by both as those who have biblical hope. This is what biblical hope does. It produces Patience. Eager patience and patient eagerness. And that's the kind of hope that gets us through. And then, because it struck me really strongly this week when I was in my city, can I show you something about this word patience? The, the Greek word for patience here, I don't do this very much. I don't know Greek very well, right? But the, the Greek word for the word, word patience is hupomone, which first off is just a really fun word to say, hupomone. Why don't you say it with me? Hupomone. See, that was kind of fun. That was kind of fun. You try it out at home later. Look, look at the definition of this word with me, though. It, it can also be translated endurance, which is what's going to be highlighted here on the screen. But just listen as, as I read this definition of hupomone. Steadfastness. Constancy. Endurance which is actually how it's translated in Romans 5, verse 3, where Paul says that suffering produces hupomone. 
in the New Testament is the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. Who knew that reading the dictionary could be so much fun? Patiently. Steadfastly. A patient, steadfast waiting for. A patient, enduring, sustaining perseverance. And then the, this, this biblical dictionary that I use said it actually comes from another word which means cheerful or, or hopeful endurance. Constancy, enduring patience, patient continuance. Church, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it <laughs> with hupomone. If we hope in what is already ours and not yet seen, our full and final adoption, our redeemed bodies, eternity with God. Here's what hope does. It creates eager hupomone in us. Steadfastness. Constancy. Endurance. Patience. In other words, <laughs> hope gets us through. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.